0: I felt very strongly when I was in office that it was important to find that compromise, that there are ways that we can all negotiate a solution to the problem. And maybe you don't get everything, but you get something. I find today that most elected officials don't want to find that solution, that they are happier, you know, with the fight than with the solution. And look, I work with some terrific elected officials, you know, as a lobbyist. I want to be very clear about that. But I you know overall, what we're seeing is a lot of groups out there that are all or nothing. And I think that they have an obligation, just like my clients have an obligation, to find the right middle ground. Whenever I speak with my clients, I say, look, totally understand your position, totally get where we're going to go. You got to be flexible because at the end of the day, it's going to require some of that flexibility in order to accomplish what you want. And I've been very successful in that model. And I'm pretty proud. Of it.
1: Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Our guest today is the founder and chief executive officer of Long Point Advisors and has been a long respected figure in New York politics. A former member of the New York State Senate, he is regarded as an insightful leader and trusted counselor to individuals and businesses as they navigate the New York state government ecosystem. With over 25 years of experience in elected office, government affairs, law, politics and business, this lawyer has earned a reputation for being a skilled negotiator, accomplished lobbyist, seasoned political strategist and savvy business evaluator. Let's welcome our next lawyer who leads, Craig Johnson. Craig, welcome to the show.
0: Seagal, thank you so much.
1: I don't know if you're aware, but I start every single interview with a gratitude question. What is your favorite thing that happened so far today?
0: Spoke to my wife. We have this incredible relationship. I've been married over 25 years. She's also an attorney. She practices, whereas my practice as an attorney has changed and pivoted over the years. But uh, I'm currently right now in Albany. We finished up the budget process last night. The budget vote and my work as a lobbyist was right up to the end to the vote, which requires me to be up in Albany my family's downstate uh, on Long Island. But uh, I try to speak to my wife multiple times a day to check in. And so I would say the best thing was speaking to her this morning, just getting a check in on what she's up to, what's up with our children. We have three of them. One's in college, one's about to go to college, and my daughter who's in middle school.
1: That's wonderful. I love that you're constantly in connection with your wife. Communication is really important both in business and our personal lives, especially when it's the partner, our partner in life. And so knowing that you're doing that and that's something that you're grateful for is fantastic. Well, let's get into your story. What is your lawyer origin story?
0: Well, my mom forced me to go to law school. She was a personal injury attorney in the days when it looked like a lot of fun. I had the opportunity to really grow up with her. And she was a leader. She was one of very few women in her law school class. She got a JD, MBA I would say she certainly was one of my early role models to become a lawyer. And when I went to college, I really, I don't want to say I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I always felt I was going to go to law school, but my mother and my father both convinced me that it would be a good idea to go right from college to law school. I'm not sure I would counsel that to my children. I think they actually should take some time off. I think that's better for them. My mother though, kind of knew me and she said, look, if you If you take time off, I'm afraid you're never going to go back. You're going to find something that you love and you're going to go on with your life. So why don't you go into law school? You don't have to practice, but you should get a law degree because there's so much you can do with the law degree. So I went to St. John's Law School in Queens. This is the time when law and order started. Not the various, you know, SVUs, organized crime. This was the real Dick Wolf, Chris Noth law and order. When I went to St. John's, I was going to be a DA. And the funny thing happened is I did really, really well my first year and made law review. And all of a sudden I had this opportunity and um, I applied for a summer associate position, uh, ended up going to Wilkie Farr and Gallagher, which I have such incredible memories and really it was an incredible place to be. I remember telling my mom on a phone call that I was going to be working as a summer associate at Wilkie Farr. She said, that's nice, dear, and hung up the phone and within a minute called me back in tears. And I asked her, why was she crying? And she said, I had never heard of Wilkie Farr and Gallagher. I had to ask my partners. Again, she's a personal injury lawyer in Long Island. That's a different world. And she didn't realize what a prestigious law firm it was and was very excited for me. So my journey began at Wilkie Farr. I was a bankruptcy lawyer. The opportunity got me into court early enough. I thought this was going to be a path. And then in 2000, my path changed. And I had an interesting pivot because my mom happened to be not just a lawyer, but also an elected official. She was a member of the Nassau County legislature and she passed away. And the Democratic Party came to me and asked me if I would be interested in running for her seat. At the time, Nassau County had just elected a Democratic majority in the legislature by one seat. When my mom died, it became tied. And they called the power of the legislature was on the line. And they asked me to run. And I decided that I wanted to fulfill her legacy. I didn't know if I wanted to be an elected official, but I wanted to do this for her. I ran and won an election in May of 2000. And after uh, spending another year at Wilkie Farr, decided that it was better for me to focus on the local government Angle and not big firm law. So left, joined a small law firm in Long Island and stayed in the world of politics. My wife and I bought a house in Port Washington, the town where I grew up. She grew up in Great Neck, New York. Uh, So we went back to our roots in Long Island. Did uh, the, the local county legislature for about six years. And then in 2007, got the opportunity to run in a special election to the state senate. Ran and won and served two terms in the state senate. And then the voters asked me to go. Lost a very close election and essentially in January of 2011, had to make the decision of what's next, what's gonna be next for me. And ended up for a couple of years working at Bloomberg, helping them uh, launch their Bloomberg Law product. But I always knew really starting Even in St. John's, but at Wilkie and at my law firm, and as an elected official, I enjoyed advocacy. And so, um, in the summer of 2013, I joined a new firm and joined their public policy group and have been a lobbyist and doing government affairs. I did public policy and lobbying with McKenna, Long, and Aldridge, which was merged into Denton's. I spent a year heading up government affairs for a telecom company, but I realized. I want to take a shot at my own thing. I want to own it. I want something to be mine. And in 2019, I started Long Point Advisors. It's a boutique government affairs lobbying firm in New York. And I've been loving every minute of it. It allows me to do my advocacy work, it allows me to do my lobbying work. And uh, I'm here doing that, still relying on the legal education, you know, days where I'm helping. Draft or legislation or legislative proposals, days I'm interpreting legislation for my clients. So there's always that legal aspect that's necessary, but I'm certainly not in the courtroom. But I am at a negotiating table oftentimes with elected officials now advocating on behalf of my clients.
1: What kind of clients generally come to Longpoint Advisors?
0: <laughs> Anybody who wants a voice in government. I remember. During the 2012 election, Mitt Romney made a point saying that corporations are people too, and and he was castigated for that. He didn't say it well, but I think what the point he was getting across is everybody's entitled to a voice in government, whether you are an individual, a group, a business, an association, everybody has a right to petition their government and to seek assistance from their government, whether that is a proactive assistance, like I want a law to favor my position or a reactive, which is I want to stop something from hurting my position. I represent all sorts of companies, businesses, individuals, for profits, non-for profits. It's really anybody and anybody who wants to have a voice in government, who may want to have somebody who has the experience of being an elected official I've walked the halls of government. I've been in the room multiple times on multiple occasions. And so I I have a diverse portfolio of folks, a diverse industry group. And today, whether it was a discussion on a healthcare matter or an insurance matter, people come to me and they seek my counsel, my advice. Some of them just want my advice. They don't want me to go talk to elected officials. They're like, what do you think about this? And there are others who say, look, I need you in front of the governor's office on this particular issue. And so I do that.
1: That's fascinating. What levels of government do you work within? So
0: I keep my focus in New York State, whether that is the state government in Albany or local governments, be it New York City or Nassau County or village government, because you'd be surprised that there's a lot of activity at the local level. And as a former local elected officials, a county legislator, there's actually a lot of ability for local elected officials to have an impact on people's lives. They, don't, they do more than simply putting up stop signs or clearing snow from a roadway in the wintertime. They oftentimes do zoning, and so they do housing matters. Oftentimes, they are addressing consumer rights. And so I have folks who reach out to me to say, look, we need some assistance in tackling the problem. But I keep it focused in, in New York State. I don't do federal work. I don't go to Washington, D.C. My relationships are based upon being a former state legislator and county legislator. So that's a state-driven, um, state-driven process.
1: What do you think it is about helping people negotiate their needs to local government that really appeals to you?
0: I remember when I was a member of the Senate and we got involved in a situation involving a constituent who had a child who was severely disabled and really lacked a voice with an insurance company in trying to get some you know relief for their child and my office was very successful in trying to help them get what they needed from the insurance company and as now a lobbyist government affairs person there's nothing better than seeing a family an individual even a business knowing that they've been able to successfully persuade an elected official or a government official about the position that they've been advocating. Unfortunately, these days, people view government as a problem and not a solution. And they oftentimes come to people such as myself to say, I need a solution. I need an ability to petition my government to get the change. And local government is weird in the sense that, Most people don't even know how it works. So, you know, having that ability to help them navigate the morass of a a town council person gives me some satisfaction because I know that they're satisfied that they've been able to affect the change they need to ensure that the product they want to have done gets done. The housing program that they're trying to complete gets completed. I'm just trying to improve people's lives. And whatever I can do to do that, working with government, I know I can be satisfied and they can be satisfied.
1: Yeah, I think it's very important, the work that you do. And I think just from my own experience, looking at local government, laws and such, like they're very confusing. And so having someone that can help navigate those things, like you said, even if it's not necessarily stepping in front of the council person, but rather even just helping someone interpret available paths, it's so vital.
0: The challenge is that it takes time for change to filter down to local government. Let me give you the perfect example. Uber. So I was fortunate enough to represent Uber for for a few years, particularly at the time when it was really the disruptive force when it came to transportation in New York State. The, the problem had always been whether you're in the city or outside the city, how do I get mobility? How do I get around? Back in the 2010s, local taxi service was not very reliable. And when you would get in it, you were a little, not necessarily the most comfortable being in those vehicles. Uber was a game changer, a disruptive force. Obviously, there were always concerns or questions that had to be answered and addressed through the government process. But Uber first came to New York City and they worked with the Taxi and Limousine Commission. But Uber was not in the suburbs and we had to get state approval. And I was part of the team of lobbyists who worked with Uber and elected officials to pass the laws necessary to bring Uber statewide. But once you brought it statewide, you still had to convince local towns and villages that they should embrace Uber. And there were a number of local elected officials who loved Uber and there were a number who were concerned and they were concerned because of what impact Uber would have on the local taxi business, because the taxi companies were the ones who supported the local little leagues were the ones who supported the local politicians and. You had to get people comfortable with the fact that you were gonna be able to, on an app, bring bring somebody to you that wasn't gonna be your local taxi driver. And so it took a lot of work in convincing local officials to adopt and embrace, to embrace Uber. We were successful in doing that. I think that there are other issues out there these days that you do see a little bit of the tension between local government versus state government. And one of the biggest issues right now in New York state is evolving housing and there was very much a big battle in the budget process where the state governor Hochul was attempting to try and change the process for housing and creating more affordable housing in New York state, but her plan was in direct conflict with local government's ability to zone and to control zoning. And so you saw this real battle that eventually the local governments won and Governor Hochul's housing plan was taken out of the budget and will be considered another time. But, you know, there was a real, I think, a failure to communicate between state leaders and local leaders on how do you address the issue of affordable housing, but balance it also with the needs of a local government? Because your local mayor, they know what the right type of housing is, but more importantly, they know what impact it's going to have. It's real easy to say, build me a hundred new units at this location with the state saying that, but the local mayor can say, that's nice and all, but do you realize that where you want to build, there's a water issue or where you want to build two blocks down, there's a massive traffic problem that you're only going to worsen. My job is to for a client could be either to support the local governments and making the case to the state leaders that hey you got to think this through a little bit you need to be more boots on the ground or the flip side is i could represent somebody before the state to say you're absolutely right we have to modernize local zoning and it it gets tough sometimes because like i'm a local former local government official i think there's a value into understanding and controlling your own zoning but the flip side is that There are great arguments to be made that we need more housing, that it would be great for my 21 year old when he graduates college, if he wants to come back home, that he can live in an apartment complex, an apartment, rather than having to live in my house. It, It takes a lot of work, but I think that the local laws and you start off this conversation they are confusing, they're also hard to find. It's like you go online and you find the village code. It's not, it's so simple and easy to digest. A lot of these localities, they just still scan their like paper laws and put it on. You're not even searchable. Local governments have to do a better job to make it easier for people.
1: One of the things I found really interesting was in your Uber example, you talked about how important it was to recognize like the ripple effect on, let's say, the limousine and taxi industry because of the fact that they also contribute to other parts of the community Mm -hmm. that could suffer if the limousine and taxi industry yep. suffers in that area and I find that really interesting because it's complex right not it doesn't stop at like one entity that entity also has a lot of impact on a community how do you navigate that
0: that's a great question I can't remember are you are you in New York or New Jersey? Uh, New, New Jersey. Jersey, that's right. Now, I don't know what the is in New Jersey. I think it's similar to New York. You cannot buy wine or liquor in a grocery store in New York state. You have to go to a liquor store instead of a grocery store
1: like that in New Jersey. Mm-hmm.
0: When I was in the Senate, there was a big effort and there's a, a little bit of a growing call these days to expand the law, to allow the sale of wine in grocery stores. People want to allow your local stop and shop to sell, you know, the Beaujolais or the Bordeaux.
1: (laughs) Interestingly, sorry, not to cut you off, but interestingly, that is the law in New Jersey, except Trader Joe's.
0: Okay, so so you can go into your grocery store and pull off a bottle of wine. If I had to bet, it's probably because the law says it has to be their own brand. It's a two buck chuck or whatever they (laughs) say. But so in New York, you can't do any of it. Now the, the issue is, is the big competing interest of the local wine stores. If you were talking about local, the local taxi company being involved in the community, the wine shop is hugely involved when it comes to the local Little League, the local Kiwanis group, the local Lions Club. You know, th- that is a true local business where the owners are living in the community. So how do you navigate that? And a lot of times you can't because people are afraid of change. Is there a way to find a compromise to having liquor and wine in a grocery store. I'm not sure. At the end of the day, I think all you can do is point to examples to say the sky's not gonna fall. Case in point on Uber. There is the local taxi company in my town, still thriving, still doing really well. They are reliable, they are personable, they continue to have a very strong business presence in my town. Has Uber taken away some of the business? probably, but at the, but it hasn't taken in a way that they've had been forced to shut their doors at all. So I think you're able to say is, look, you may be competing against one another, but if you're going to make the argument, you can be out of business. I I will cite you examples that say you're not going to fall out of business. So I, I think what you want to try and do is do your best to see if you can find the middle ground. And if you can, that's the way to strike the compromise that you need to do. But then you also have to find the right elected officials who are willing to also be part of that compromise. And that's where one of the challenges that all too often, and you're seeing way too much in these days, elected officials are really striking on one side or the other. And it's becoming more and more of a challenge to find the middle ground, to find the art of compromise.
1: How do you think that is?
0: I think there's a number of reasons. I think one, social media has done a disservice. It's very hard to try and strike a middle tone when all of a sudden you're going to be attacked by somebody on social media. And oftentimes elected officials don't have enough courage of their own convictions to stand up. They think that they're going to lose because of Twitter. And I try to tell the elected officials that I work with, in my experience, I said, look, I was around when Twitter had just gotten started, 2007 to 2010. It wasn't like necessarily in heavily involved in my electoral or my governing activities, but it's an echo chamber. And most of your voters are not on Twitter. And if they are, they're not following everybody that you're following. So I think elected officials are just locking into their own particular teams. And there's less comfort because they feel like if they are willing to find a middle ground, their team is going to get angry at them and find somebody else to replace them and I wish that wasn't the case. It's certainly, you know, I've been asked multiple times if I'm going to run for elective office again. I'll say it to you and to everybody. I'm not going to run for office again. I'm done. I've been done for 13 years. I've been never been happier. I don't want to go into a field where you're constantly going to be questioned over your motivations. i felt very strongly when I was in office that it was important to find that compromise, that there are ways that we can all negotiate a solution to the problem. And maybe you don't get everything, but you get something. I find today that most elected officials don't want to find that solution, that that they are happier with the fight than with the solution.
1: That's really unfortunate because compromise is actually, in many ways, the strongest asset that an elected official could have because yes, nobody's happy, but everybody's a little happy too. And I think that's really important. And everyone feels a little heard.
0: And we have great, and look, we have, I work with some terrific elected officials as a lobbyist. There are a lot of them in New York state. I want to be very clear about that. But overall, what we're seeing is there are a lot of groups out there that are, are all or nothing. And I think that they have an obligation, just like you know, my clients have an obligation, to find the right middle ground. Whenever I speak with my clients, I say, look, totally understand your position, totally get where we're going to go. you got to be flexible because at the end of the day, it's going to require some of that flexibility in order to accomplish what you want. And I've been very successful in that model, and I'm pretty proud of it.
1: Last question before we get into the rapid-fire questions. I'm
0: nervous about those rapid-fire questions, but okay. Oh,
1: don't be nervous. <laughs> They're great. They'll be a lot of fun. I promise. What do you think is the largest or what do you think is the strongest assets that you've taken from being a lawyer that you still put into play now in your current role?
0: Writing. By writing, I mean having the ability to really understand what a statute's trying to say. And that way, when I'm trying to either help craft a statute or or more importantly, interpret the draft that the elected official says, here's my bill. It doesn't say what you think it says. I'm able to come back and say, actually, it does. And let me tell you why. And my legal education definitely helped in that aspect. You know, where it also worked to my advantage is my years at Wilkie really, really prepared me for The ability to advocate and to speak with confidence as a first-year associate you never ever got the opportunity to go into court but at wilkie because in the bankruptcy group it was small enough that there were times that i was sent to the bankruptcy court to (laughs) uncontested motions to simply stand up before a judge no, the senior associate's like i don't want to go down to you know bowling green you go do that i'm like oh this is so super exciting get dressed up start sweating before i even get there and then you go before the judge and you actually get the confidence to make the presentation i think my law school education and then my years at wilkie really prepared me to speak on my feet and to really craft an argument whether it's the winning argument it's the, the most persuasive argument to get my point across so I think those are the things that um, I truly valued from my legal education and definitely prepared me for the career that I am in now.
1: Excellent. Also, what a blast from the past. Bowling Green, I used to go there too. That was a nice little nostalgic moment for me. It,
0: I couldn't even tell you. I will say this. I, I still read with interest all the stories about bankruptcy and bankruptcy court cases. I couldn't tell you the first thing about it anymore. All I remember is always trying to argue as debtors counsel that the automatic stay applied. So the term automatic stay is always remains in my head.
1: Love it. Okay, let's do it. First question. What does leadership and law mean to you?
0: I think it is about the ability to pivot and really have the confidence to pivot. A lot of times, folks want to stay the course. I think you have to be flexible. And I think that you have to be willing to open your mind up to other possibilities and then figure out how your position can be melded and crafted to, to fit the other possibilities that are out there.
1: What is one thing that you would change about the legal industry?
0: Billable hour. And by billable hour, I'll start it this way. I do not do things by the billable hour anymore. I do monthly retainers. I think that is a better aspect of how to value somebody's time. I hated the billable hour. I hated doing the billable hour. It's impossible as a lobbyist or or government affairs or public policy work to do it by the billable hour. There has to be a rethinking of that. But look, I'm not somebody who's going to tell the chairman of XYZ law firm, you should stop doing billable hours. I just think it, it would make it so much easier, particularly the first year, second year associates, this notion like oh, they work 2,500 billable hours. Really? What kind of value did you provide? A lot of it's training. A lot of it is, I could tell you being in-house, companies don't really like it very much. They don't have a lot of confidence in it. So I would simply say if you can do it on a project by project basis or a retainer, that's the better way to go.
1: Yeah, it's clearly something that everyone's trying to fix or figure out in one way or another. And so 100% agree with you. What is something that other lawyers seem to misunderstand about the work that you do? Oh,
0: that's a really good question. I, I think people misunderstand what a lobbyist really is. It has a connotation, and it's a historic connotation, and it's the wrong connotation. I am an advocate. My role is to work with government to ensure that people's voices are heard in government. Sometimes that may require more of an effort than others. People say, I can just go right to government and it'll get taken care of. Unfortunately, not necessarily. And that's the way the system has been set up. But. but If somebody says to me, I don't need a lobbyist, I have my own relationships, God bless, go. As long as you can accomplish what you can accomplish, the way I see it is I just can provide valuable experience. And simply that experience by being a former elected official, I, I like to think that I understand a little bit of the thinking of what an elected official is thinking about. I represent a client and I know that your concern is if you support my client's position, you may lose votes. So let me help you find a way to balance that. People say, oh, you're a lobbyist, and they they dismiss it. And there's more to it than that. I've dealt with it. I proudly hold the title of lobbyist. I'm not afraid. I don't shirk from it. Um, You know, Certainly, it does require sometimes me advising some of my lawyer friends. I'm more than just simply a caricature of what they think a lobbyist is.
1: Great answer. What is a piece of practical advice you would give to our listeners? These are leaders and future leaders in law.
0: I would say read everything closely. I'll tie it this way. Read and write everything closely and proofread everything. There is nothing worse than reading something with typos in it or errors that you know that someone rushed to get out. There's nothing that gets me more frustrated than when I read a New York Times or Wall Street Journal piece and you see typos in it and there's, it's supposed to be the premier newspaper or media organization. Similarly, when you're drafting an email or you're doing outreach, proofread it. You need to be really sure of like who your audience is. When you create that email or you create that written document, before you press send, read it out loud. Because there's nothing worse than sending an email to Assemblywoman Jane Smith, and the body of the email is to Assemblyman John Doe. That is guaranteed to have your position totally ignored. So I really would just be careful in drafting. Take your time. You don't have to be first in order to win in this profession. You have to be the most careful in your efforts.
1: Agreed. It's all about the quality, not necessarily the speed. Yep. All right, final question. What do you do for self-care?
0: Peloton. So I'm a nut on Peloton. If you were to ha- interview my wife, who's gone from <laughs> being a prosecutor to being a defense attorney and now is one of the leading cannabis attorneys in New York, what's the greatest regret you have? She will say, in my opinion, it's like the newlywed game, she will say, getting my husband a, a Peloton bike for Father's Day. Now, I'm not seeing... Given my age, I think the results that I want to see, I'm on that thing all the time. But then again, I like to eat. But I am a Peloton bike nut to the point where I was in studio in New York for my thousandth oh my ride with Allie Love, got the shout out, had the photograph, and it was fantastic. I stayed in New York City with my father the night before, I had to be there at 6 a.m. I was the first... I'm crazy about it. I really enjoy it, but it's my self-care. It really allows me for 30 minutes to go to a place and focus. And it gives me the energy to tackle the day.
1: I love it. First of all, I love Peloton yeah. as an organization, as a company. They really know how to get you to think about exercising, not just for a goal of looking better, but really feeling better. And And they're also just like really inspirational. So I feel like I'm getting some sort of therapy while I'm doing it too. However, I have fallen off the boat.
0: I'll tell you right now go to in January, Alley Love, 30 minute feel good ride. Can't remember the date, but I'm there. You'll see me in my blue and white peloton shirt with the beard you could see me in the mirror i can't
1: awesome it it was a
0: friday ride i'm gonna keep doing it whether or not i could lose weight i don't know but i'm two rides short of my 1100 i want to try and get a shout out for my 1100 but it won't be live
1: i think it's amazing that you got to go to the studio i've been dying to do that that's amazing I want to thank you so much, Craig, for being on the show. If anyone wanted to reach out and connect with you, what's the best way they can do that?
0: Sure. Craig at Long Point Advisors with an S at the end, dot com. So C-R-A-I-G at longpointadvisors.com.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much again, Craig, for being on the show.
0: Y'all, thank you so much. Really appreciate it.
1: Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.